I know you listen to these episodes like a hundred times while you're recording, yet you don't remember our like one sentence intro. Look, it's like water off the back of a duck. The intro is literally just the name of the show and you can't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Here she comes. Hello and welcome to We Both Podcast Together. The Hazards of Loving the Decemberists, which still the title. Still the title. Do you expect the title of the podcast to change as we go? I I think maybe like I expect at some point one of us to have an intervention with the other. <laughs> you say, named the podcast, so. Uh, anyway, who is, are you? I'm 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 Matt Esner. Yeah, and uh, I'm Pete Wissinger. And this is a track by track, album by album analysis of the music of the band The Decemberists. And today is special because we have a guest. Yeah, our our second ever uh, guest on the show, uh, Justin Blair Spath. Hello. That hey, there he me. is. There yep. he is. There he is. He he is here. He picked uh, up on the cue there. A little slowly, but I got there. I uh, I'm out of the the loop. And and, and uh, today, j- today we were talking. It's <laughs> <laughs> going really well. <laughs> The good thing is, like, having a third person isn't interrupting our rhythm at all. So Definitely good. not. Yeah. Anyway, what's up? Uh, well, today we're talking about an album called Picaresque. Yes. Mr. Spaeth, you're in for a treat because this is the album that got me into this band. Hey, guess what? This is also the album that got me into this band. What? Hey, guys. I don't want to blow anyone's mind, but this is the <laughs> album that also got me into this band. It's almost as if... Pete was the patient zero that spread this album to the two of us. I think it's also almost like probably this is the album that launched the band into a sort of like wider indie rock uh, audience. This is the this is the album that probably got them on NPR. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but we should we should uh, get to know uh, Justin Spath. What would you like to know? So I guess, uh, how, how did you get into the Decemberists? Well, that would be uh, from one person called Matt Esner. He introduced me, told me, hey, you should listen to this. And then we listened to it while driving around in his vehicle. I believe it was a celebrity at the time. Uh, Fun times. Yeah, I might have still been rocking the Chevy celebrity. Fairly certain that was uh, what it was, driving around in the back skirts. A CD player and a cassette adapter, because that's that's how only only '90s kids remember yeah, those. Yeah, you were rocking that for a while. So, Justin, what was it about the Decemberists that was attractive to you? Uh, it just sounded like nothing else I'd really heard before. Um, it was somewhat similar to They Might Be Giants. I mean, not really, but. Um, just from a they used words and stuff like that that were not the most common uh little different themes versus you know like comedy jokes that kind of dumb stuff versus hi i'm going to tell you a song about uh death and suicide and i'm going to use big fancy words because uh i'm a nerd and i've read them yes so they they weren't a typical sort of pop band no no it was the the fun aspect of uh getting to just hear 
how they wrote and how they talked, it was kind of reminded me a little bit of myself because I, I read a lot. And so I use words that I read, which I don't think are like big or like unusual <laughs> words because I've seen them a bunch. And then I say them and then like half the people around me look at me like I'm some crazy monster. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. It's just I've <laughs> seen this a lot. I don't know why you don't know. And then I just explain what it means. Kind of like that, but in musical form. Absolutely. These are words that people read and write but don't say. I like how Justin uh, took this opportunity to uh, backdoor brag, <laughs> brag how smart he is. reads. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I know so many words. Oh, I'm so much smarter than everyone around me. But, but here's the thing. They Might Be Giants is another band that all three of us have loved. So, like, in the Venn diagram of the Decemberson and They Might Be Giants, is that middle category, like, nerd rock? Yeah, I, I would say so. I could easily see that being the case. So, so Justin, what other what what else were you listening to around uh, 2005 when this album came out? 2005. Gosh, I'm trying to think. Like, I believe I was uh, listening to a lot of Weezer. Yep. At that point, um, Maladroit and uh, the Green Album a whole lot. Um, and then, you know, I was still listening to Mink Car um, fairly off and on. That was one of my favorite uh, They Might Be Giants albums, um, which was always interesting since, you know, the album dropped on 9-11. So that was uh, a fun thing. Well. Wow. This is the second time that 9-11 has come up in this podcast. <laughs> 9-11 comes up a decent amount on this podcast. It's probably going to come up again tonight in this episode. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Um, I'll see if I can drop it in organically for you guys. Yeah. Or not. You know, just any anytime we can get it in there. It wasn't super organic <laughs> in the previous episode. <laughs> uh, have you seen The Decemberist Live? Uh, I've seen them live at least twice, possibly a third time. I'm struggling to remember if I saw them before I saw The Hazards of Love. Oh, yeah, um, that show was amazing. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. The Hazards of Love, and then uh, What a Beautiful World, What a terrible world or whatever yeah, yeah. album is close enough so yeah I, I know i've seen at least them the for the tours backing those two albums nice so let's let's jump back 15 years uh what what were you what were you doing uh 15 years ago when this album came out justin spaith 15 years ago i was being terrible and <laughs> being in college just being terrible being like, ah, I don't know things, <laughs> mm. okay. but I'm yeah. smart because I'm a teenager. That's the, there he is. That's captured it beautifully. <laughs> yeah, I hope you were wanting random voices coming out for me other than my own because, well, boy, that's what's happening. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, never forget. <laughs> would you would you still uh, consider yourself a Decemberists fan? Yes, very much so. Every time they have something new drop, I am excited to uh, listen to it. 
part of part of the goal of this podcast, although we we don't really talk about it much, is to figure out if I still like the Decemberists, which I do. But it's yeah, like I mean, so so far, you're not embarrassed to have loved these albums that we've listened to, right? Yeah, I'm I'm afraid like I'm I'm going to listen to one of these albums and be kind of embarrassed of it because there's there's bands in my in my past that I have maybe thought. On, on reflection, I don't really like listening to them, or I don't really like the fact that I listen to them. They're sort Matt, of, tell me sort a band you pleasure. once evangelized that you would never evangelize in again. Um, I think I, I don't know if I would like push people toward Cake again. Like I mm. like their early stuff, but I I think everything after Pressure Thief doesn't hold up. Is it Pressure Thief or Pressure Chief? I believe it's Pressure Chief. Yeah. Pressure Thief was the illegal rip. Gotcha. Yeah. Here's one for me. Like, I do not know the last time I listened to Ben Folds. Oh, yeah. That's been a very long time. But I was, like, way into Ben Folds. I still like the Ben Folds 5 records. But, yeah, I don't know if, like, I think Ben Folds is kind of, he's not, like, problematic for me in as much as, like, I'm embarrassed of him. I just think he's problematic for me in as much as I think some of his music kind of sucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He's he's probably listening right now to this podcast. I, ben, Ben, I love your early stuff. <laughs> I would and, imagine he's horribly disappointed. And I think some of your other you stuff right is good now. too. I just think there's there's a lot of it in there is just kind of like it seems like you were angry that you weren't more popular, but then you like self sabotage <laughs> by putting curse words in all of your songs, so you knew you wouldn't get radio play, but you like seemed like you wanted it anyway. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm sorry that wow. this is how you have to find the out. truth comes out. This is this is big. Smith, Smith, let's uh, same question to you. Any are there any bands that you, you used to like evangelize that you wouldn't necessarily want other people to know that you listen to? Boys to Men, maybe. Whoa, Back early, what? early on. I don't, I don't <laughs> know. Like, okay, like, well, if we're talking, if I we're talking even... way early, I used to listen to some pop country as when I was in like middle school. So I <laughs> yeah, guess you I mean, know, like I was way into Guns N' Roses for <laughs> a very long time. Like. More recent stuff, like since I was um, in like college and like past college, I don't really think there's anything that I'm super ashamed of, as it were. Um, like high school, uh, you know, some 41 might be one. I didn't really evangelize mm. them a whole really? lot, but. I did it. It was kind of like a guilty pleasure. Um, at least they're like nice, their first nice. kind of big album. Um, one thing I am not ashamed of is uh, was it Eiffel sixty five. I mean, Blue is uh, is a masterpiece. So, Pete, if this if this question was trying to set me up to talk about Cowboy Mouth, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking your bait. Oh, I hadn't thought about them in Dude, years. I think. I think you gave me a Cowboy Mouth mix that I like listened to <laughs> once, and then it was just like, "This is not for me." I liked the one singer that uh, was the drummer. I don't remember his name. Like, I liked him. He's the he's the only. I singer, thought Fred there LeBron. was a second guy. Okay, that so also the guitar. This is all getting cut. Players. There is no way we're including any of this on the podcast. <laughs> Some of the, sometimes the guitar player sings, but. Fred LeBlanc is the main, the main uh, okay. Should we get back to the uh, topic at hand here? Yeah. I don't even remember what we're talking about anymore. I'll, I'll bring us in. I'll, are we ready to, to go with the flow of the episode? Yeah, let's hit it. All right. So, recorded in the summer of 2004, 
And released by Kill Rock Stars in 2005, we have the third full-length album by the Decemberists, Picaresque. Now, are you guys familiar with where the word Picaresque comes from? Um, I mean, doesn't it have a similar connotation to picturesque? No. Oh, you idiot. Well, wow. You think just because these two words have esque on the end that they're the same word? I mean, technically, they also have a P-I and a C and maybe some other Yeah, they're mostly they're, they're the same similar. word. Yeah, yeah. Homophones usually mean the same thing. Yeah, that's true. I refuse to be shamed about this. <laughs> I, uh, whenever okay. I was listening to the album and everything and just randomly Googling stuff, yeah, one of the things I did Google was picaresque, and I'm like, Tell yeah. me what this word means, because I don't remember. Well, what, what'd you find? What'd you find? Uh, I found that it is relating to an episodic style of fiction dealing with a rough and dishonest but appealing hero. Yes. So this was some sort of uh, style of novel in Europe uh, between the 16th and 19th centuries. It's typically about low-class characters who use their wits to kind of get by. Um, and you can definitely see why, you know, has Colin Malloy read any of these old novels? I don't know, maybe. But you can definitely see the influence of that sort of genre in his songwriting. Because um, a lot of his stories are these sort of like lower class, scrappy sorts of characters. And I feel like especially with this album, because, um, I mean, pretty much every song except for... Um, what, 16 Military Wives, I feel like, is very, I don't know, kind of like that. Like, 16 yeah. Military Wives is is not is telling a story, but not as much, I feel like, as a lot of the other songs in the album are. Yeah, it's very rooted in the present rather than looking back to the past for inspiration. Mm -hmm. So, I actually watched the documentary about the recording of this album, which they put out on a DVD with a concert through Kill Rock Stars. And this was uh, recorded in 2004 in a, a church in Portland. There was this uh, church that is no longer used as a Baptist church that they rented for a month. Uh, and uh, Chris Walla from Death Cab for Cutie, who produced The Tane, also produced this album. And and uh, what was the what was the lineup on this one? So, this is the last album with Rachel Bloomberg as the drummer. Um, in fact, she recorded this album, but then did not tour with the band after the album. Um, that's when John Moen, their current drummer, came in. And in fact, John's connection to the band was Rachel Bloomberg. They were friends. So she, she brought him in to replace herself? Yes. And she said that it was the hardest decision that she's really ever had to make to leave the band, but it was because she and her, I think it was her husband, um, had another band, Norfolk and Western, that she was just totally neglecting. Um, and she felt the need to move on and do more with that project. So she left the band and sort of passed the baton to her friend, John Moen. But yeah, you got Colin Malloy, Chris Funk, Jenny Conley, Nate Query. But then also there is, for just this album and tour, another member of the band, um, a violin player named Petra Hayden, who also sings. Interesting note about Petra Hayden. Uh, so she saw the band live and then told Colin that she really liked them and that if he ever needed any violin, she'd love to uh, to help out. So he called her and brought her in. Uh, she is from a musical family. So her dad was a jazz bassist named Charlie Hayden, 
And she is a triplet. And all three girls are musicians. And one of her sisters, Tanya, is married to Jack Black. Wow. That's, uh... That is, that is some six degrees of Kevin... <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Shit there. So, Jack Black's sister-in-law plays violin and sings on this album. So, if they wanted to maybe work with Jack Black, they have sort They've of a connection. They've got it. They've got a connection. They are only one step removed from Jack Black. So, a little bit more about the recording of this album. Uh, so, this church was this big, weird space. It was just one big open room, which means things sounded really good, but they could only record one thing at a time. One instrument at a time? Yeah, uh, except for Mariner's Revenge song was recorded all together around a single microphone. Wow. Yeah, the drummer was like in the back of the church and everyone else was around the microphone. <laughs> uh, but there was, they talk about it. So yeah, think about that recording process. Because I guess a lot of recording studios have like separate booths so that there's not like, you know, crossover sound and things like that. Um, but they couldn't really do that. But uh, things sounded good. It was a silly and weird space. Uh, it had a swing in it. And it was like still full of toys from when people had rented it out for stuff to do with kids. But uh, Colin talked about how this was the first time that the band really had the money and time to fully realize their ideas as a band. You've got more folk instruments, banjo, hurdy-gurdy, hammer dulcimer. Um, you've got a bigger, fuller sound. They bring in horns. They've got strings. Um, that it just generally was a much bigger production. And I think the you know the the results are on the are on the tape. You know, like the the record sounds bigger than anything they've done before. For sure. And the tour after this was the, by far the biggest tour they've ever done. Bigger venues. Um, you know, bigger crowds. Um, I actually saw them twice on this tour. I saw them on the first and second leg of this tour. Um, and just like their showmanship kept from here getting grander and grander. Did you see them uh, at the pageant both times or did was No, neither. Nice? So, I one of them the first time I saw them after this album came out, uh I we road trip down to Nashville and saw them at a tiny little venue called the Exit Inn. Where actually I met Colin on the street. He was in a guitar shop not far from the venue. Did you did you guys talk? I mean, I just said like said hi. I didn't like geek out on it or anything. And then the second time I saw them was at Mississippi Nights. Mississippi um, Nights. Ah, love Mississippi Nights. You know, and they talk about how bringing John into the band meant that they, like, they told him that they like to be goofy live, and he, like, really went with it. Which, if you've ever seen them live, he does get pretty goofy. This album is the one that they got more press. Uh, they were on Conan after this album. I think it's their first late-night TV appearance. Was this bad? Conan was still late the second late yeah 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 for sure but i actually recorded it when they played on there they played we both go down together nice that's the inspiration for this podcast oh yeah yeah forgot that that was the name of the podcast you can check your notes check your notes on the intro and uh, jump back yeah yeah uh another interesting tidbit about this album it's the first album to feature any of the band members on the cover uh, yeah. So actually I really like the art for this album because it is all like these kind of like local theater production type photos, uh, of the songs, but the band is dressed up in costume. If you own the album and you flip through, there's pictures of a bunch of the songs and they're pretty funny. I will say, I think this might be the only album that I bought physically. Oh, really? I, th- I think I, I think all the other ones I either 
obtained through illegal means or streamed bought digitally yeah i know at the very least i bought hazards of love and i think the king is dead oh you know what i did buy hazards Um, of love yeah all right so i got two of them you're welcome for my 32 dollars decemberists (laughs) however much this cds cost but yeah this is actually their last album for kill rock stars because they jumped to the major labels after this album yeah they just just kept getting bigger after this well, so uh, do you want to jump into some tracks? Let's talk about the tracks. I am excited to do so. All right. Track one, The Infanta. Here she comes in her palanquin on the back of an elephant. On a so, Matt, I have a feeling you're a big fan of this song. I love this song. Do you know why uh, I know? Because you used this as an audio clue at a trivia night that I went to that you wrote the, the trivia questions for. Really? Yeah. What was the question? I don't even so remember. So the, the category was intros to songs. Yeah. And uh, you included this song, which I was like, why are you doing this, Matt? No <laughs> I one can't knows imagine. That. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure I did. But, like, no one's going to get this. Uh, I got it. But, like. Yeah, obviously. I remember you talking about how you would never write trivia again because people just, like, it was a thankless job. Like, everyone just complains about the questions. It's true. Yeah, it is a thankless job. But also, yeah. like... I mean, this is kind of an asshole move to put this... this. Is an asshole <laughs> song to put on a trivia night for... Just, like, a, just a normal crowd of, like, you know... It was, like, moms and dads at a high school. Yeah, no yeah. one's gonna know this. It was boomers at a Catholic high school trivia night, and you throw this on there. It was basically a middle finger in the form of a question, <laughs> is what it was. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, you know what else uh, about the song? Is it starts with a shofar, uh, which is, uh, like, a ram's horn. Oh, really? That's what that is? I think that's what it sounds like. I, did, I don't know if it was maybe it was, like, a conch shell. It could be. I always just kind of assumed it was just some sort of weird uh, recording of a whale. It's kind of what I always assumed it was, but it would make sense that it was some weird instrument. I'm I'm gonna go with Shofar because it seems like something that the Decemberists would have been like aching to put on an album for a very long time. I mean, a conch shell would work as well, but I think those are less less uh, they're harder to come by. I feel like, and they're harder to tune for sure. Well, anyway, this is an awesome intro. I mean, this this song makes a statement. And, like, this is a song that, like, they use to open concerts as well. Like, Yeah. It's also the opening to our podcast. Uh, what? So it's like they knew. It's like they knew, like, sometime Matt and Pete are going to need a song to <laughs> kick up with their podcast. Let's... Let's write a jam for him. This song was apparently used in Mad Men as well. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say it's one of the few like non um, period period appropriate songs. Uh, it's like a it's a scene. I think I don't. Know, I, I feel like it's a montage where like people are getting ready. But it's it was weird watching that episode. I'm like, wait a second, this didn't come out in the '60s. Just took you right out of the episode. It did. Yeah. For sure. This song has such a, like, a rich sound to it. Like, there's so many instruments on this song layered in there, um, which really tells you just in this opening song how big of a step up this is production-wise from their previous studio albums. Yeah, there's a lot going on in it. You want to talk a little bit about what it's about? Well, Justin Spaeth reads a lot of books, so he could probably tell us what an Infanta is. 
It is uh, a daughter <laughs> of the ruling monarch of uh, Spain or Portugal. Generally, the eldest daughter that is not heir to the throne. There you go. Um, and uh, yeah, the the imagery in this song, you do get this kind of like royal uh, procession kind of feel from what they're talking about in this song. And uh, what what kind of setting are you guys feeling Spanish in the setting of this song? I, I think I might be overly influenced by the films of Walt Disney, but I always like pictured you know the uh, Prince Ali song from oh when, wow whenever yeah. I heard this. I song. mean, honestly, I've always kind of figured it was uh, like a like the the Spanish Moors, like uh, back when Northern, Spain yeah. was taken over by uh, the the Muslims. Uh, Managed yeah, to, to conquer it. That's kind of how it's pictured when it was, like in that. Sort and so of they name check the Moors, right? Because they say, uh, "Ride the wives of the King of Moors." I believe so. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely getting a Northern African kind of thing. They talk about a phalanx on camelback. You're not seeing that in Spain. Yeah, you're <laughs> seeing an Agrabah. <laughs> well, sure. Also. A phalanx on camelback would be weird. Like, that's not a very it seems good phalanx. It would be hard to, yeah, it'd be hard to deploy. <laughs> yeah. It'd be an ineffective phalanx if you're on a camel. Uh, it's one of the few songs I know that uses the word palanquin. Yeah. Also, I like that they use pachyderm. I mean, there's there's just... The, like, Colin is... All right, you know what? I'm going to start throwing the big words out first song, right? Like... Let's let people know what they're into here. You do kind of get the feeling that he's trying to fit as many, you know, difficult words as he can into this song. He's a, a real Justin Spaeth. <laughs> yeah, he, exactly. Um, one of the things I wrote down was, this is a rare song, not about death, but about birth. Because almost always, it's a death-based song. Ooh, I mean, for the rest of this album, it's basically all about death. So. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, here's here's the thing: if uh, if people are annoyed by Colin Malloy's uh, uh, maybe sometimes pretentious use of vocabulary, it's maybe because of lines like "and above all this folderol on a bed made of chaparral, she has laid a coronal placed on her brow." I mean, that's. That's just intentionally difficult, right? Like, do you think he knew all of those words before he started <laughs> writing the song, or do you think he was like, "Got it, I got it." He just had a thesaurus. Yeah. Do you guys know what folderol or chaparral are? I do not. Myself. I mean, folderol isn't that like the only the only context I have for that is the phrase folderol and fill dd, and it's like sort of un un uh, unnecessary. Uh, a do. Yes, it is like showy, useless nonsense. And then chaparral is like a shrub. Okay. Hearing chaparral, all I could think of was chaperone, and I'm like, I'm fairly certain that's not. <laughs> it's correct. not a bed made of chaperones. No. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes words that sound similar mean the same thing. Justin's faith. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one thing I like. Sure, in we this, did learn that earlier. I like in this song that it does has this little part where it quiets down and then builds back up. It's nice. It's pretty. I mean, while you were talking about how some people get annoyed with Colin Malloy and his verboseness, um, 
I I personally just love the from all atop the parapets blow a multitude of coronets. Just like that little line. Yeah. Just I I love it and it makes me go, "Oh yes, give it to me." Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, so this is exactly the kind of stuff that turns some people onto the band, but also turns other people off the band. Yeah, I think definitely when I first heard, I mean, because this is the first December song I probably ever heard, the first track on the first album I ever listened to. And I think their insufferability, like, really, uh, really keyed into me, or I really keyed into that. Like, it really spoke to me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting, like, uh, you know, I say this is the album that got me into the band, but, like, I had listened to their other two albums, but did not become a diehard fan until this album. And so maybe it's because they started slapping me in the face with how silly and nerdy they are that I was like, never mind, this band is for me. Uh, so should we move on to track two? Yeah, let's hit it. Track two, we both go down together. Uh, this song is like classic Decemberists. It's it's an all timer for me. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Leslie Ann Levine a little bit, um, but maybe that's just because they're both about like death yes <laughs> this one i think more more acutely and more specifically than leslie and levine i mean i think more people die in leslie and levine uh but i feel like we get to know the 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 uh the doomed couple in this a lot more intensely than we do anyone in leslie and levine before we get into the lyrics of the song because there are some doozies of things to pick apart uh i do like the violin work on this song uh yeah you got petra hayden on the violin and doing backing vocals uh, it's a pretty song. It is very pretty. Well, it's also probably the first December song I learned to play on the guitar. It's, it's really, very easy. Really easy to easy play. Easy chord progression. Yes, it's a simple song, really. Um, but this is a song. It's a sort of romantic joint suicide. Uh, or is it? Well, that's the thing. Colin Malloy uh, did an AMA on Reddit in 2015 where he apparently referred to the song's narrator as an asshole and a sociopath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think is justified in this song. Yeah, I don't think he thought that when he wrote it, maybe. <laughs> maybe in like retrospect. Probably, yeah, I think he's he like... He thought about it some second. more and was like, oh, no, this guy's terrible. It's Why? not okay. So where do you guys doing? think the setting of this song is? Um, so I... My my thought is it's like uh, maybe like working on a a railroad perhaps well, no, like like, like where in the world is this song? Yeah, so maybe like I don't know California during the uh, Dude, during the building of the railroads. It's like the first line of the song. Uh, oh, oh, it is in the song, the cliffs of Dover. Right. So where are we? Uh, it's in England. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you were able to think of it because I was like racking my brain. I'm like, oh god, I literally just listened to this. Why am I not knowing? Uh, I it's it's come up in several of the episodes that you haven't heard Justin Space. But <laughs> I don't actually listen to the lyrics of these songs. Like I sort of know that they exist, and I'm vaguely aware of what they say sometimes, but I don't really pay attention to what they mean. I, I will say the lyrics aren't need. To, <laughs> you don't need to pay attention to lyrics in the songs. That's stupid. The cliffs of Dover are iconic, right? These like beautiful white cliffs. Um, so we're, we're definitely in England here in terms of like time period. I would just assume 1800s cause it's a Decemberist song. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I feel like that's uh, you're if you shoot in that direction, you're going to hit it ninety nine percent of the time. Uh, we know the name of the woman in this song. Uh, her name is Miranda. Uh, so what what do you guys get from the lyrics as to who these two star crossed lovers are? Uh, so one the 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 male the singer of the song, which who I assume is male. I don't know if it's explicit in the song. Uh, he's he's rich, or at least like he's yes. uh, he's like a foreman, or or he's rich or something. And the uh, the sweet untouched Miranda is uh, the child of laborers who work for the narrator. Yeah, she's a, a dirty daughter from the labor camps, and she's a tattooed tramp. Wow, which makes me wonder: like, is she a slave? Yeah, that's a good question. Because who was getting tattoos in the 1800s? Sailors. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she's a sailor. He is kind of mean about her, though. He's like, you know, he, he's not very nice when he talks about oh, her. Oh, no, no. I make sense why uh, Colin Malloy basically called him a because he is basically an asshole whenever he's talking about her. It's like, I love this so much, but really she's kind of shitty and just, you know. Eh, eh. Yeah. Well, and I will say this song, I guess, is supposed to be a romantic joint suicide. But there is one troubling line in this song that makes me question how romantic it is. How he talks about how she's crying whenever he decides yeah. to have sex with her. Yeah. You wept, but your soul was willing. It's like, how? sure about that? <laughs> yeah. I think that there's maybe some questions of consent here where he's like, no, nah, she wanted it. <laughs> like, <laughs> she, if she wasn't wearing those pants, man, that outfit, she she wanted it. So you kind of want, like, is this some rich dude who forced himself on one of their servants and then made her kill herself with him? Um, yes. I could easily see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is that sort of twisted, sort of tragic romance that uh, he likes, He likes at least in the early Decemberist catalog, to throw in his songs. You know, when they play this live, there's like a there's like a, a coda that he puts on it, or like a, a, a extra bridge or something. Have you ever heard them have them play how's that? It, how's it go, do you? Um, let's see. You know what? I'm just going to abort this bit because I, the only way to do it is to show it to you, show you one of the live cuts and I don't, I don't have one of them okay. on me. Well, that, that was a great addition to this discussion. I'm glad you, uh, I loved it. It made in, me enriching this experience. Made my heart sing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> just know that that is something. Okay. Though. Is it extra lyrics? Yeah. 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 Hmm. He sings it right before the end of the song. Hmm. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but this is like, you know, I feel like a lot of times if we think about their other albums, uh, if, if we think about um, Her Majesty the December, it opened with uh, The Shanty, which is this build-up intro, and then you get immediately hit with Billy Liar, which is this sort of like big pop number. And that's kind of what they did here, right? Where you've got this kind of build-up intro, and then this like, you know, this is this is a very catchy song. As I put it, I said, it's certainly a banger. It is. One of several songs on this album that could be described as bangers, for sure. I think they still play this live, like, all the time. I want to say I've heard this at almost every December show I've been to. Like, yeah. I feel like this and uh, O oh Valencia, they'll just, like, play forever. For sure. What about When the War Came? Yay, yay or nay on that one? You think forever? I don't know. It's a good song. <laughs> I don't. Sorry, Matt Esner hates it, and uh... oh, I don't want to spoil. Well, we're anything. not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna have some strong words. 
strong uh, words about that song. Um, <laughs> anyway, this uh, this song is good, right? It's simple. It's catchy. Um, it tells like a quick, shallow narrative. Yeah. Like yeah, it's good. Ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. Would recommend. Uh, the next song is also explicitly a story song. Track three, Eli the Barrow Boy. Eli the Barrow Boy. So a lot of times on their albums, the songs that are this slow don't really connect with me, but I like this song quite a bit. Yeah, this is absolutely one of my favorite songs from this album. I just adore this song. It sounds like a song Matt Esner would not like. Um, I got some pretty hot takes on this album, guys. Uh, yeah, just uh, this is not a song I particularly you, care for. Even though it's a, a, it's a ghost story, that doesn't make you like it? It's fine. It's okay. fine. What, what emotion would you say comes across in this song? What, uh, like yawning, being, being bored. <laughs> I was looking for sad. It's a sad song. That's definitely what I would have said. It's it's sad when I have to listen to it. Oh my god. If the skip button isn't working on on whatever device I'm using. So, so Justin Spaeth, what do you get as sort of like, who is Eli the Barrel Boy? I mean, I've always just a very downtrodden, destitute man who desperately wants to give his love everything but he's unable to and the fact that he is unable to provide for her what he wants to give her what he thinks she deserves it breaks him just and he kills himself right just goes all right well i am a terrible man i can't do any of this right so peace and then there yeah. we go. And it is a ghost song, but subtly. Because it says, like, he died, they, they buried him. And it says, but still when the moon is out with his push cart, he calls down the day. So it's like a, it's like a subtle ghost and story. And, the, the, you know, the, the two meanings of Barrow, like, you know, Ooh. with the, him yeah. being in oh. a Barrow and pushing around. Yeah, it's just I, the fun, I don't know how subtle it is, but just... Again, one of the reasons why I really loved this album and I really loved this band. So, it just kind of made my nerds go, woohoo. So, Matt, do you have any good reason not to like this song? I, I don't hate this song. It's just like, it's one I skip. I will say, I do really like the harmonies in it. Like, there's a really yeah. cool, like, harmony with uh, Colin and Rachel that's. Actually, I think it's I think Petra does most of the backing vocals on this album. Um, And I think that not that Rachel's backing vocals were ever bad, but you do get prettier harmonies on this album than any of their previous albums. Yeah. Also, this album or this song has Hurdy Gurdy on it. So that's something. That's true. There is definitely some hurt. And yeah, this album in general, they bring in a lot more of that non-traditional rock instrumentation. Would you like this song better if while they played it? Uh, Chris Funk was dressed as a tree? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I feel like that would increase anyone's enjoyment. (laughs) Yeah. But no, this is is a good song. It's definitely definitely slowing things down, though. Yeah. 
but like it, it it brings your attention i think more to the narrative you know it's a character song it's a sketch of a character yeah it's nice and sad it's a sad song the next song is also sad but it's fast <laughs> and it's funny so so justin spaith what is track four track four is the sporting life So I feel like this is a song that the three of us can all probably relate to. <laughs> I'm a little offended by whatever you're implying. Uh, this is a song about a a nerd being embarrassed trying to play sports. I, I don't know whatever you mean. <laughs> Are you saying I'm a nerd? I can't relate because I knew I knew I couldn't do sports. Like it's not that I I tried and failed. I just didn't try. Like you would never even be on the team right. to be put in. <laughs> so yeah. Until I discovered Ultimate Frisbee, I, I wasn't an athlete. Um, yeah, so, you know, we've got here the story of a narrator who is trying to live up to their, you know, lofty expectations of sports and failing. And uh, I think it's funny. It's a funny song. Yeah. I mean, it's not like ha-ha funny, but like NPR funny. Yeah, you have accused them with, you have praised them with the faint praise of calling them NPR funny before. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Look, they know what they're doing. Some of my favorite lines in this song, there's my girlfriend arm in arm with the captain of the other team. It's just like this hilarious image of you like totally like, <laughs> oh no, pressure's on the line. My girlfriend's with the other team's captain and then just like totally whiffing it. I don't know. It's hilarious. You fail so badly that your girlfriend leaves you for your, like, he's your literal so enemy. terrible. I just, I have to get with the person who defeated him so soundly. <laughs> right. It's like a joust for the honor <laughs> of a lady. What sport do you guys get the feeling they're playing? I always assumed football, but that's just because, I don't know, that's the big sport in America. Uh, sure. I, I, I assumed it was soccer, a.k.a. football. Yeah, like actually, football. soccer was my thought as well. But I don't know. I was trying to look through the lyrics if there's any specific reference I mean, he talks about how a heel puts him on the ground, um, which easily could be soccer, um, like someone tripped him. Um, that would make sense from that lyric. That's about the only one that I can think of. What if it was shot put? That <laughs> would be bizarre. That would that change bizarre. your interpretation or your how you, how do you view it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it would make um, me love it more. Here's a little fun fact about the song. Uh, this was on the uh, corporate playlist when I worked at Kohl's. Interesting. So every once in a while, I would hear the song while I was working. I like the, like the image of just like this character having their big moment, and the crowd is watching it, and they just totally like slip and fall and lie there trying not to cry. You would imagine there's jeers and booing, and uh, a father just like looking on, shaking his head disapprovingly. I mean. This is I funny. assume there's lots of chanting of "you suck," right? Yeah, for sure. Like I imagine, if, like basketball, this is like it's tied up, and you got fouled at the buzzer, and you're at the free throw line, and then you just totally like, you know, you, you, you don't even hit <laughs> right. the net. You just right. you just pass like a foot short. Exactly. And you're just like. How? How did he do this badly? Yeah. You practiced yeah. this shot so many times. <laughs> right. What is wrong with this person? Yeah. Matt, I dare I say it, this is not NPR funny. This is just funny. 
Yeah. Yeah, I feel calling this NPR funny is uh, is an insult. Do you like this song, Matt? Uh, I think it's fine. When they play this live, there's a, a, a part where the whole band picks up tambourines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a pretty tambourine-heavy song. There's a lot of tambourine. It's it's a pretty percussive song in general, honestly. Like, it's it's basically just drums. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, other parts too, but it's, it's definitely being driven by uh, Rachel. For sure. But yeah, this is... So if we look at, like, the four tracks we've had so far, we've gone from, like, one of the more sort of, like, sad, serious songs to this just, like, straight-up goofy number. Like, there's, like, yeah. tonal whiplash going on here. Yeah. Um, it's like, hey... If you thought that we were taking ourselves too seriously because we just made that sad song, check this out. And then there's another, there's just another shift right after this. Yeah. What do we got for track five, Matt? The Bagman's Gambit. Definitely a highlight of the album. This is one of their more uh, explicitly contemporary songs. Yeah. So what's the story we've got here, boys? It's something about like a government operative... Uh, falling in love with someone who is a spy and is maybe who's seducing him in order to get him to steal government secrets. You get that vibe. I would say straight up just a person falling into a honeypot. <laughs> been, totally <laughs> being honeypotted. Well, cause, I mean, you know, not to jump to the end too fast, but at the very end, he's like, you know, 10 years later, I see them and all I get's a wave. So he's like, I love this person. I did everything I could to, like, get them out of the situation. And they were just like, thanks, and then booked it. So what is a, what is a bag man? It's a person, that I would assume, who does the drop. Yeah, so a lot of times in, like, gangster or spy movies, the bag man is whoever is, like, exchanging a briefcase. I feel like that's Matt Esner's job in real life. Yep. Could be. Um, but we've got, yeah, we've got this another... You know, I suppose this is already the third track on the album with a tragic love story. Actually, maybe the fourth, because Sporting Life's kind of got a tragic love story. I mean, they break up. Captain of the other team, maybe, you know. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe they get together and maybe they, you know, they work things out after that. Yeah. Who knows? But no, at least no one, no one dies in this one. Uh, I'm sure people die in this, just not the main character. Not the main character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we don't sure really just... know that they're dying. Well, no, actually, the first part, she killed a cop. Oh, yeah, good point. Someone straight up gets killed. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, actually, she shot him. Maybe he, maybe he's alive. No, that's true. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of interesting. You know, I, I kind of, is this like a Russian spy? Maybe maybe it all takes place in Russia. Maybe everyone's Russian. Because they say uh, the purloined nope, in Petrograd. They say National Mall, so it's probably not all Russian. Um, and Petrograd is... Uh, this maybe is not a contemporary song because Petrograd was Soviet Union. It's now St. Petersburg. Oh. I mean, it's certainly more recent than the 1800s. Sure, but I think we're looking at Cold War here. Yeah, no, you're. I would say that you're right on that one. It would be most likely set in the Cold War. So we've got a government employee who falls in love with a Russian spy and smuggles her government secrets because he loves her. Tale as old as time. Yeah. <laughs> But like, okay, we're talking about the story and the story is is good and the lyrics are good. But really, I think that it's the music of this song that makes me really love this song. Yeah, I love the chorus. Mm-hmm. The going from slow to fast, back to slow yeah. to back to fast. It's it's a it 
it's fun. It keeps you kind of on your toes musically as far as And it's got that that big crescendo at the end. Mm -hmm. Um where it kind of gets very kind of like uh it's building and building and building and yeah, yeah, it's so cool. Dissonant bridge where it's just yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that we've seen them do a lot is kind of like long songs. And this seems like the long song on this album. Like this and Mariner's Revenge are the extended tracks. Right. Yeah, seven minutes is it's pretty long for a for a pop song. Pretty beefy. But like, yeah. I love this song. It's moody. Um it's got a interesting story. Um it's got really cool instrumentation, very kind of like layered sound. Hey Pete, quick question. Uh if you love this song so much, why don't you marry it? Oh, oh! You got burnt. Hold on, hold on. I'm thumbsing up in my own thing in the Zoom. Yeah! Uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. That way everyone would know that you did this. Yeah, talking about what you did on your Zoom is good podcast material. I think I'm going to start describing random things that are around me. So, you know. Oh, I like the song. Bagman's Game, it's a good song. It is. Track six, then, from my own true love, Lost at Sea. It's it's filler. It is definitely filler. I I don't know if I would agree it's filler. I mean, it's obviously not the best song in the album, but I this album and The King is Dead are the two albums that I will listen to the whole thing cover to cover and I don't feel a desire to skip any of the songs in it. Oh, I wouldn't skip the song either, but that's because it's like over so fast. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I will say I like this better than Eli the Barrow Boy. What so. the heck? <sighs> Why? There's like this song is like I mean there's not much to it. Like I like the I like the little is it a what's the instrument being used for the melody in this? I think it's just a guitar. No, no, that like do do do. It's like um, is it an accordion or It's probably accordion. Might be melodica. Yeah. Or a concertina. I mean, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I like the song is because of the instrumentation on it. Cause there's, um, like after the, the chorus, like the kind of sounds like a calliope. I don't know if it's that, if that's like the hurdy gurdy or whatever, kind of like a plinking mm. sound. Like I just really like how that adds to it. I think there's a dulcimer on it too. Yeah. But in general, this feels like the kind of track you would stick on at the end of an album as like a bonus. I think its placement is a little weird. Right. That's the thing. Like, especially knowing what comes after it, it makes it even less tolerable. Like, I mean, the thing is, I like this song, but it just seems like a deliberate, like, trolling act to put this between Bagman's Gambit, which rocks pretty hard. And then the next song. It's like Like, it's an it's an inhale and a gasp for breath before moving on yeah it's it's giving you a chance to recover from the last song and then you get done with it and you're like okay what's next what are they going to hit me with and then bam you get struck with absolute deliciousness what, what do you get struck with 
you get struck with 16 military wives, which is amazing. Sixteen military wives, thirty-two softly focused, brightly colored. Yeah, this is uh, probably the most like rockin' song on the album. Would you say it? It kicks ass. I, I I would say so. Like I love the organ part, like the the rock organ. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, it's just it is a rocker. You got a big horn section. Uh, it's super catchy. Um, it is, uh, there's a really fun music video for this song. Very fun music video. It's the Which, first thing that I showed my wife whenever <laughs> I introduced her to the Decemberists was I played this music video for her, and she's like, I don't know what this is, and I'm just so weird. But it's The music great. video is, like, explicitly aping Wes Anderson's style, I feel. Yeah, it's, it's very much a Rushmore-inspired, uh, mm-hmm. like... Is it like a like a model yeah. UN kind of thing? Yes, and Colin is the US, and he declares war on Luxembourg, and that's Chris Funk, and the whole band's in it, and Carson Ellis is in it, and Chris Wallace is in it, and yeah. But uh, this is an overtly political song, explicitly about very much so the Bush presidency and the war on terror. Very critical of all of the what he would see as uh, pointless deaths of the wars. Uh, but then it also like he's taking shots at more than just that. You know, he's he talks he's talking about celebrities and academics and the media. Uh, it's just kind yeah, of like pretty a, much everyone gets yeah. get gets shot at some point with this gun. Yeah, he even hates moderate liberals. <laughs> he's like, because you're not a socialist. <laughs> it's like get out of our way, non-communist. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know this using the motif of. Uh, soldiers wives to sort of show how terrible America's wars are. And it's kind of playing on this American exceptionalism, this idea that like America is always the best and can never do wrong. And it's obviously correct because we're doing it because we would never do anything that is not correct. Sure. I'm I'm an American history teacher and it is all good. Yeah. I can't imagine anything that would be considered, you know, objectionable in America's history. It's, pretty much pristine i'm not always a fan of horns and rock music but it works in this song i don't know man horns and rock music is great maybe that's another group that i wouldn't uh i wouldn't uh espouse real big fish oh (laughs) there you go uh so one thing i'll say about this song though is that it is not as indicative of kind of like the lyrics of the rest of this album like, it's a much more grounded song lyrically mm-hmm. than the sort of more kind of, like, whimsical aspects of almost every other song on this album. Right. But it's fun. And, like, they still play this one live a lot, yeah, too. Yeah, they do. And they make you sing along with it. Yeah, Colin really likes his la di da dee does He does. Who doesn't love them? They're just magnificent. That's fair. Uh, but, yeah, this song's great. It's fantastic. What's up next, Matt? Next track is The Engine Driver. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. I love this song so much that I'm assuming you hate it. How did you know? <laughs> Are you serious? I think it is 
it is kind of okay. Clearly wow. this man is wrong because <laughs> again, this is one of my favorites of the album. Like I adore this For song sure. so much. Yeah. I told you I had some hot takes. I have some hot takes on this album. <laughs> Listen, this is probably a song of theirs that I myself play and sing the most on guitar. Oh my god. I don't even yeah, I've never even like thought about looking up chords to the song. That is how little <laughs> oh I care god. about this song. I like it. It's, wow. it's got a cool 12 string on it. It's got a nice 12 string guitar. So you you only like the rock and pop songs on this album. Um, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything when we get to the <laughs> evaluation, all right, all right. but yeah, that's fair. Uh, no, this song is beautiful. It is one and also, would you be surprised Matt to know that this is Colin Malloy's favorite song on this album? A little. I just figured I just because I figured he would like the next song better. But yeah, this is the one he said uh, that he thought that this just, like, came out perfectly. I have a feeling that Colin and I have very different favorite December songs. Like, I, th- I think, like, he dislikes all of the ones that I like <laughs> and vice versa. I just heard my white ha- wife having an altercation with our dog. Uh, so I'm going to go check on that. All right. Um, but yeah, here's it. Okay, let me talk about this song real quick. Then I'll go do that. I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me uh, call the, the husband of the year uh, award committee and see if they're the But anyway, what we've got here, to me, the lyrics of the song are about someone who is trying to forget like someone that they loved that broke their heart. And they sort of, and it's about sort of like using the pain of that to kind of like write and kind of using writing as a way to process your emotions. I will say this. I think this is like the most Her Majesty the Decemberists kind of song. Like I feel like this hmm. this would fit really well on Her Majesty the Decemberists. Not that it doesn't fit here, but it just reminds me of like peak Her Majesty era, the Decemberists. It's great. It reminds me a lot actually of uh, Here I Jumped I Was an Architect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another song. Another song I don't like. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I'll I'll be right back. You guys, uh, Spaith, keep talking about this song. It's uh, amazing. Um, Matt Esner is a stupid doo-doo head. There's a cap behind his shoulder. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a classic. I don't know how you can not love it. You know, I remember when I first bought this album, uh, I think I took it over to uh, our friend Andrew's house to rip, because uh, I don't think I had, uh, for whatever reason, I don't think, I'm, either I didn't have a CD burner or my burner didn't work, but I remember specifically, like, playing this album for Andrew Welker and uh, him not giving a shit about it. Uh, yeah, I would imagine this was an album that he was like, I don't care about this, why are you making me listen yeah, to it? Yeah, He was one of the first people I tried to convert to this Empress, and it did not take... Have you have you successfully converted anyone to the Decemberists? Yeah, my wife. She has come to enjoy them a lot, and she sings along with the songs and stuff whenever I play them. The whole. Yeah. I mean, has she heard the whole disc- discography? Uh, she has not listened to all of it. Um, she's pretty much only listened to it whenever I have listened to it, right. and I don't believe I've listened to everything. Uh, everything of theirs well in fact i know i haven't listened to everything of theirs well she's been around and able to hear the the music all right um 
Welcome She's back. fine. <laughs> Hooray! I'm just trying to make this the the worst editing experience possible for you, Matt. Uh, I mean, so, we're I mean, already looking at like an hour and twenty, <laughs> almost an hour and a half of recorded material so far. So. Uh, by the way, I told Kaylin you don't like Engine Driver, and she's like, "Yeah, I don't really like that song either." <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> she knows. She knows what's up. So, Matt, if you don't like Engine Driver, first of all, you're like, do you have any? Like, this is a great song. It's beautiful. It's fine. I like. I don't. I don't think it's a bad song. It just doesn't speak to me. Uh, well, I bet that you love the next song then. Track nine on the bus mall. It's a very similar song tonally to Engine Driver. Yes. This is like the cleanest track-to-track progression on the album. Yeah. They might as well be the same song. This song is about male prostitutes living in Portland. You know, it is very explicitly rooted in the modern real world. Um, Portland is sort of notorious for having a lot of, like, young runaways, and that is sort of captured in this song. What do you think of this song? For me, it uh, pulls at myself from multiple directions. I just think it's uh, really pretty. Um, it's not mm-hmm. one of my favorites, um, but it's uh, definitely a song that uh, that I enjoy. It's uh, a little bit sweet, a little bit sad, but depressing. It's just it's got a whole bunch of different little bits that it's doing and pulling mm-hmm. and trying to to get you to feel. And anytime something makes you feel something is it's it's a good thing. Yeah, and anytime a song has the the line, "We laughed off the quick tricks, the old men with limp dicks." <laughs> you just you how can you not love it? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, we all know about the limp dicks. I, it's yeah, old it's men a thing. Actually, they're, they're hating on old men a couple times in this song. Yeah, yeah and you know, you do get a little bit of the backstory of these people about their home lives and why they're living on the streets and this kind of like things are rough and hard, but like, we're still kind of like making the best of it. It's very Decemberist in that way. Like talking about how, like, you know, they, they get closer, like a family, like even though things are rough and, and hard and it's not always the best. It's like, they're still getting, they feel close to one another and they feel like love and, and care and yeah. everything. And I would say it's a common theme in their music, this whole, like, uh, finding happiness, even though you're living in, like, the worst possible situation. If they, they, they're into that. Yes, they are. So, Matt, why, why do you hate this song, too? Um, it's fine. <laughs> I would just would not, rather not listen to it. <laughs> uh, one thing that I, I don't really understand is, how is an iron cue ball making you better at at pool but also like your opponent uses the same cue ball so like what kind of advantage are you getting there's a line we reign in the pool hall with one iron cue ball i i don't don't understand what that means it means that they're better because they're using the special cue ball um i think that's how the pool ball thing figures out which one's the cue ball and which isn't because it's got a magnet in it. And so it senses the magnet, a gate switches, and then it just sends it down the different track versus the other balls. 
I yeah, I don't think we're not talking about just like a standard pool table. I mean, probably not. But like, if you're talking about a standard pool table, that's just kind of how it works. Is it's just a little, little fun magnet goes, huh, and then it goes different. So they're they're just saying. Actually, I'm looking it up. It says here there's a, a layer of iron underneath a cue ball that gets nudged and pulled by a strong magnet inside the table. Uh, putting it on a different track to the rest of the balls, which is why the cue ball comes down first. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Essentially, just like Look at that, that's man. how it how so it they're just, gets separated. They're just saying they're good at pool. Then they're not. And I, I think it's just the way. There's nothing special about. That I think cue it's ball. just a way of like you know bumping up the word count, up the uh, just getting the beats right for for it kind of. Well, I like this song even less now. However, Matt. Here's how I would cheat with a fully iron cue ball is that uh, my partner would stand where I want the cue ball to go with a powerful magnet <laughs> so that my shot is a perfect. Okay, yeah, so I'm, I'm into that. If that's what they're You're talking about, then yeah, I'm back on board. You like the song. <laughs> yeah, you've sold me. This is about these uh, these young people who, who hustle at the pool hall with their powerful With the powerful magnets. electromagnet. <laughs> right. I, I'm sorry I tried to ruin the song for you, Matt Esner. <laughs> I think my biggest complaint about the song is that it's just standing between me and track 10, the Mariner's Revenge song. We are two Mariners, a ship's sole survivor. So, how many Decemberist fans do you think were created from this song? I, I mean, me. I was. Like, <laughs> right. this This is what pushed me over the edge. Like, I already liked the album. But then this song happens. Yeah, this is, like, the ultimate Decemberist song. Yeah. Like, people who don't know the band be like, oh, are they the ones that did the song about getting eaten by a whale? <laughs> it's like, yep. You know, like... That's the it's the memorable song. Right. Right. It's it's hard to forget this one that's for certain cuz it just yeah. It's everything that a good December song needs. It's set around it's set, you know, in in a maritime setting. Yes. Check. Uh there's some sort of uh like orphan or waif Check. There's a mistreated woman. Mistreated woman. Check. <laughs> who might be a prostitute. Let's just say she's yeah. a prostitute. She also might be a ghost later. She's probably a ghost. Yeah, she definitely is a ghost later. And she yeah. dies in the Check. middle of the song. Yeah, everyone There's, dies. Yeah, everyone in the song dies. Yeah. Is it set in the 1800s? Death. Probably. Probably. Yeah, probably. Wh- you got some heavy accordion work. Whaling ships. So, yeah. Or ships that are around whales. It tells a story. It tells a story. It's long. It's very long. With like eight plus minutes. Um, this song kicks ass. What, what's the story here? A woman ends up getting in with a man who ends up spending all of her money and uh, giving her like tuberculosis or something, and then she yeah, dies. I can feel like that he's like he's got gross STDs yeah, or something. Yeah, he's just got know. all the bad things, <laughs> and it kills her. Her his STDs kill this woman. Uh, and right, and she, but he left her. He yep. left her. Yeah, and then she died after he left and ruined her. And she's like, 
you, son, come here. <laughs> yeah, Kill him because, <laughs> oh my god, I hate him so much. Just Yeah, she, uh. was, she was a single mother. Like, so... So it's about it's about the son of this woman who is, you know, used and abused by this shit heel, and then he gets his revenge. And his mom's a widow. His mother is a widow. And so then this guy goes on this like massive convoluted quest to track down this man. Um, I think that what what works so well for the story of this song is that it's framed as one man talking to another man. And as the story goes, you learn who these two men are. And then it's got this like fun reveal at the end where he's like, and now I'm going to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> like he's going to kill just, him it, it, while after they've paints, both been eaten by a whale. Right. And it's like, I know we're already dead, but I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, and I'm going to savor this and enjoy <laughs> this to the, just the depths of my soul. I just, I, Oh, it's going to be good. It just this this song paints such a fun picture. Like you get such a clear image of the story while you're listening to this song. I would say this song is funny in a way that most of their other songs aren't because it's just so over the top in its uh grotesqueness. I mean, they're clearly not a band that takes themselves seriously, and this song certainly shows it. Uh definitely when they play it live, they don't take it seriously. Well, yeah, this song live has continued to evolve over the years that I've seen them to like the, the whale swallowing theatrics get bigger and bigger. Like the first time I saw them, uh, like right after this album came out when it came time for the whale. Cause you know, they do this thing live when you see them where they like make the audience act like they're getting swallowed by the whale as they're describing it in the song. So the first time I saw them, it was just Chris Funk making like his hands, a, a jaws and doing this. And then the next time I saw them, they had this like big paper whale, like, and then it became like a big piece of paper mache. And then it became like a huge stage piece. Like it just got grander and grander and grander. Uh, like, I'm pretty sure if, if we see them on the, the, their 20th anniversary tour, it's probably an animatronic. <laughs> the, like, I've got it. They idea. enlisted Jim Henson Company's help and, and made right, it. Yes. And this is usually their finale. This is usually what they... They either end their set or end their encore with this one. Yeah. Except for the last time we saw them when they didn't give us an encore. It's the only time I've seen them that they did not play this song. I can't wait to tell the story of that show, but it comes <laughs> up so often. But it's, it's going to be a doozy. Well, I've seen them so many times and it's the only time they did not play this song. I mean, to, to be honest, like at that point, I was okay not hearing it because I mean, I love this song. <laughs> I, I mean, hearing it on this album is very exciting, but like seeing them live, it's, I would be okay if they closed with something else. But they, they get so goofy live with this song. Um, and it is, it's a goofy song. Like, you know, they're supposed to like, they, it's kind of interesting that they're this like hip indie rock band. And they're making silly songs like this. It's a good song. That's a big whale, too. It is a big whale. It eats two. The sky went black. Whales are, are probably the most terrifying creatures on Earth. I didn't know you had a whale phobia. Oh, my God. They're so big. And, like, if you are in a position where you're seeing a whale in the wild, like, you're, you're, you're already mostly fucked. Like, because you're, you're in their territory. But, like... They're, I mean, they don't like live close to where we are. They're, they're out in the depths. So you're going to, you're either going to die by whale or die by drowning. Cause that, 
the whales. I mean, I feel like if you're going out to sea, you're not guaranteed to be killed by a whale every time you go out there. I feel like things would be much more interesting. I don't know if that's true. If uh, that's how it was in real life. I mean... Look, whales are sea monsters. So, Matt, you have cetophobia, the fear of large fish. Yeah, yeah. Like, I honestly do. Like, when I, you know, when I go to the aquarium, they have belugas. And, like, belugas are so much bigger than you think they're going to be. Like, because you see dolphins, you're like, oh, dolphins are cute. But imagine, like, Wait, something that's, like... belugas are so cute. Are you afraid of a beluga whale? They're twice the size of a dolphin. And, like, they could just, they could just like, drown you without you even being able to put up a fight. They would just push you to the bottom of the water and you would die are you afraid of like every animal at the zoo (laughs) no no because like most of the time i'm on land at the zoo so like i feel like on the land it's a fair fight sometimes you're at the zoo and you're not on land sometimes sometimes if like i go to the like the water parts of the zoo like i'm in the sea you're supposed to get in the water yeah i feel like that's what's causing your issue is you're just you're not supposed to swim with them you're supposed to climb in the tank. Like, I feel like sea lions are okay because, you know, they live on land sometimes too. So they're like, they're part-timers. So like, they're, they're cool with me. But whales, they're, they're, they're in charge. They're in charge there. And I'm, I'm afraid of them. So here's the thing. After this song, the album's basically over. It's basically over, except they do the same trick that they did in their last album, where it's like, just kidding, fake out one more song. Right, and this other song is Of Angels and Angles. Or if you're me, and you were thinking about how people switch and fail at spelling them, and then I ended up writing it down, and then I failed and switched and spelled them the opposite way. So for me, it's Of Angles and Angels. This song, I, I, I feel nothing about this it, song. It just, it, it, it eases you out of the album, I feel like. It's just sort of like the other song just sort of ends just really big and bombastically, and this just kind of gives you a little bit of a denouement, just kind of just kind of slows it down and lets you just kind of take it in, I feel like. It's, it's an a- after-dinner mint. Yeah, it's it's the after dinner mint of the album is a good way of putting it. Um, I think it's really pretty. It's a pretty sounding song. It's, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of just here you go, and it's only like it's like not even three minutes long. It's just just a little, little blip, just a little there. I think every album, Colin makes sure there's a song that he can come out and play solo between the end of the first set and the encore. And I think this is what that song is. This is just like the contractually obligated singer songwriter song that he has to put on every album. I don't think we need to talk too much about this song. It's fine. I honestly like as I rise is a better song. I like that one a lot better. I was thinking this is not as good as, as I rise in the same slot. Right. Yeah. Honestly, I would have rather than put my own true love lost at sea here. Huh. I mean, I feel like they it would work it would work well in that spot just like this one does. But then I you have like. right. then you have two maritime songs back to back. Oh, whoa. You're, Watch you, out. You're basically, yeah, you're basically making a theme album at that point if you You don't want those well, too I mean, close to each other. They're like magnets. 
<laughs> I feel like with this album, they are teetering on the verge, and I've talked about this before, of being a novelty band. Yeah, yeah, and putting and putting uh, those two songs together would would that would have done that it. would have done it that would have pushed them right over the edge. So, like overall, now that we've gone through the whole thing, what do you guys think of this album? Uh, for me, it is my second favorite December album. What's your first? That uh, my first favorite is uh, The King is Dead. I absolutely love that album so much. Oh, so you don't like the Decemberists? <laughs> no, Matt, I don't, you've, that's, you've already made that comment. Well, before, I'm going to make it that. every time someone, <laughs> someone praises their favorite album. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I know it is definitely not their typical work. Um, I love the album, it, Justin. I, part of the reason why I like it is just because it shows that they have the talent and the depth to be able to do a more traditional uh, album as far as it goes, but they still have like, you know, their influences and stuff to it. It's not like, you know, they just decided to say, screw all this big word nonsense bullshit. And, you know, then they come at you with uh, Carly Rae Jepsen's, uh, whatever the one song is, hit me baby. One more time. Uh, Nope. That's that's pretty Spears. I think that's it. Um, So, uh, so Matt, this is the most I have heard you say you didn't like songs. Yeah, so I was thinking about it, and, you know, although this was the album that got me into it, I would say this is definitely not my favorite album. Like, I think my problem with this album is that the highs are so high. Like, the four tracks on this album that I really love are, are you know, some of my favorite December songs, and everything that... Are, Name that them. Is which, which four? The Infanta... Which four? Uh, Sixteen Military Wives, Mariner's Revenge Song, and uh, Bagman's Gambit. So everything that's not those four songs, like it's they're just in the way of getting me to those songs. So I I don't <laughs> I don't particularly. So you're saying on, on this intentional re-listen, you probably prefer Her Majesty as an album? Uh, yeah, definitely, for hmm. sure. But I, I mean, I would also say the songs that I like on this, like. Those four songs are, like I said, are probably four of my favorite December songs. Yeah, I mean, to me, I get why this is the album that made me fall in love with the band. Um, and I still think it is one of their most consistent albums. I mean, but I also like the slow songs on this album, which you don't. Yeah. In fact, if, <laughs> yeah. if you put a gun to my head and said, pick a favorite song on this album, I'd say Engine Driver. I mean, I, I feel like I'd be very close to saying that, too. It, Yeah, just... Oh, I love that song. So good. So what would you say is your favorite on this album, Matt? 16 Military Wives. Yeah? Yeah. It's it's just so good. Uh, I mean, it's the song that probably, like, it It probably, it, I won't say it made me a fan because Mary's Revenge song is really what, like, cemented it. But, like, this that's the one that really, like, it meant I was going to start putting that track on mixed CDs. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> the ultimate badge of honor. Right. Because that's. You know, when this came out, I was, I didn't even have an MP3 player when it came out. So I was still making CDs. There you go. I actually, I, I was carrying around, I think, like a Discman still. I held onto a Discman for a long time. Yep. Yep. I, I believe I saved up and bought like a really janky ass, like 500 gigabyte or 500 megabyte, like platter hard drive giant thing like the size of like an old game boy just about um mp3 player and like i was listening to music and stuff on that and that was 
Certainly interesting, to say the least. So, Matt, our closing segment. That's right. It's time for our favorite segment. Light up your Does, face. <laughs> right now, every, every episode, we check in with Pitchfork and see if they still like the Decemberists. Because um, they used to really like the band. They did, yeah. I haven't listen, looked at a Pitchfork review in a very long time. Do they hate them now? Uh, these days, they don't get the kind of praise they used to get. Right. Eh, it's not, they're not the new hotness anymore. No. Yeah. Far from it. They're old and old and sad and decrepit. So from what I remember, Matt, I think that Pitchfork liked this album. They did like this album. So the review came out on March 23rd, 2005, and it was a best new music. So we're looking at like probably an 8-2, I would guess. It's very close. It's actually an 8-3. There you go. Which Ooh. is, I believe, tied for the second or tied for the highest rating they will ever get. Or they have gotten so far. Uh, yeah, Castaways and Cutouts got an 8.3. And Her Majesty gets an 8.2. So. Okay. So they did they have any sort of like uh, kind of like damning praise? No, no sorts fake of praise or anything like that. But I, uh, I, I did pull this quote uh, from the reviewer Stephen Dusner. Uh in developing into such a formidable flock, the Decemberists not only have far outstripped those ridiculous comparisons to Neutral Milk Hotel that dogged Her Majesty, but have also allowed Malloy to widen his lyrical scope and hone his ambitious narratives. So, so they, they're still talking about Neutral Milk Hotel. They're talking about it in as much as they were like, man, we shouldn't call them uh, Neutral Milk Hotel light. Um. Neutral Milk Hotel Plus. Can you imagine an album like this getting a good review on Pitchfork today? No, no. no I don't think. It, I don't. I mean, no one would take it seriously. I mean, although the Sixteen Military Wives is like political enough, maybe to get to get some attention. But honestly, at this point, like any sort of musical political discourse, like has to be way more aggressive to get any attention. Well, I guess my other question is like, you know, this was this album was very popular with like college kids, right? right. Like that's who the the Simbers prime demographic was. Can you imagine college kids today getting into this kind of album? Yeah, not really. I mean, I don't really know college kids enough for me to be able to tell you. I mean, I teach high schoolers. Yes so. or no with it. So I, you you definitely have a much better look at that than I do. Do do douchey college guys still learn to play the guitar, or are they all like DJ now? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good question. Because I mean, when I was a douchey college guy, I was I was learning to play guitar. Like we started playing guitar like. But you weren't like, you weren't like playing Dave Matthews. I mean, I could. I listened <laughs> to a lot of Dave Matthews just because my brother did. But like, I mean, I, I wasn't like douchey and like trying to use the guitar to pick up chicks. I was trying to play like nerdy songs and pick up chicks and hoping that work. the right chicks yeah, would, exactly. yeah. <laughs> it would have to be really really strategically placed chicks with really weird musical <laughs> tastes but anyway picaresque definitely a milestone album for the band and uh seemingly this is probably album that i would say sets people's expectations for the band like for sure when people think the decemberists they think it's going to be something like this album yeah this is the template this is the most December-y, December-sty they they have been up until this point. Yeah, their albums leading up to it definitely culminated in this one. Yeah. Like it just it just they they took what they had, perfected it, 
and then produced it and handed it right. to us and said, what do you think? And we're like, oh, my God, yes. You've got the over-the-top vocabulary. You've got the story songs. You've got the folk instrumentation. You've got pop. You've got rock. You've got, you know, um, emotion. You've got some grounded – like, it, they just kind of – everything that they've done, they just throw in on this album. And it works. It does. Except for for Matt, not as good in retrospect as it once was. That's right. Well, we all can't be perfect. I guess after this, we'll have to talk about some EPs and B-sides again. Yeah, I think the next episode is going to be some EP or an EP, I suppose. There's definitely some B-sides. It's probably going to be a shorter episode. It would have to be. I mean... Because we got the, the Picarescades. Right. That's what's coming up next. I mean, it's going to help that I won't be there. Just like <laughs> wasting all the time. No, you were a great feeling. guest, Justin Spade. It's nice of you to tell me that to my face. After I leave, you can feel free to to just bash bash away, baby. No, no, no. I shan't. Well, Matt, I think it is your turn to try and come up with a, a send-off line. Yeah. Uh, so this has been uh, We Both Podcast Together. I've been Matt Esner. I've been Pete Wissinger. And we have uh, to thank our special guest, Justin Spay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was fun and a lovely experience. Uh, until and until next time, uh, just remember, um, America can and America can't say no. Right? That's terrible. That's is the that best you got. Is that that's the line? The could, is that that the, is the line, but that's not. Uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm too edgy. If I if my political wow. commentary is too wow. hot for you to take right now. We're gonna lose all of our pro Bush listenership. So, good job, Matt. You know what? I uh, I, I don't care at this point. I'm going to vote for Carrie. Wow. Edgy. Oh. All right. All right. Bye.